Good to see you guys again. And come on, how many appreciated that extra hour of sleep last night? Woo. Come on, man. That'll change your life, won't it? Just an extra hour of sleep, man. Crazy. This morning, I want to say this. We are so honored uh, to have my friend, uh, Pastor Tullian Chavidjan, with us today, who just slam dunked it. Uh, home run in first service. It was just crushed it. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And and um, and I want to say this. I didn't get to say this in first service, but he is a good friend of one of our spiritual fathers, Pastor Dino Rizzo. Uh, which, uh, as you guys know, Pastor Dino was just with us about a month ago. And uh, and so um, I love that and love that connection too and that relationship. And so, but I want to say this. Um, God just uniquely uh, put our relationship together this past spring. It was really it was a God thing. There's no doubt about it. And and I just pursued it. And um, I followed him and his ministry for years, and he, God has used him. He'll never know uh, just how much God has used him and his ministry to impact my life, my family, this church. And um, and so, and I also want to just say this, that uh, they have launched uh, a new church down there in Florida that he'll talk to you about, and it's called the Sanctuary. Love the name of it. And uh, they're five weeks old, so the fact that he's here is a real big deal, y'all, because he had to clear most of his calendar, because it's pretty important to being a part of your, lo- of your church that you just planted. All right? So we know that feeling so his wife Stacy uh, is preaching down there today but um, but we're so thankful that you kept us uh, on on the books for sure to come and be with us here in Fort Wayne and by the way he's redeeming the Graham name some of y'all may not know you may know that he's you know the grandson of Billy Graham um, but uh, some of you guys may not know this this is the first story I ever heard coming to Fort Wayne and I told him when he got off the plane yesterday I said do you realize that your grandfather interviewed for a pastoral job here in this city and they rejected him yeah, can you believe that? I know. Y'all shaking your head like I am. I was like, what's up? And that church is no longer, by the way. Okay, figure that one out. So I said, you've come to kind of just redeem the name, you know what I'm saying? But for the first time in Fort Wayne. But hey, Elevate, let's stand our feet. Would y'all welcome? Come on, Pastor Tully and Chavidjan today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you can be seated when Pastor Kyle told me that story about my granddad coming here when he was a young man interviewing for a position, a pastoral position, and the church rejected him. That is, I've heard just about every story about my granddad that can be told. I had never heard that story. That is hilarious. <clears throat> that church was a terrible judge of talent. Terrible. So the fact that they are no longer, as you say, is not surprising. Um, this is... I have traveled all over this country, and this is my very first time to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it is good to be here. My daughter Jenna is with me since my wife Stacy had to stay behind and substitute teach at the church that we just planted, the sanctuary, but um, we come from South Florida, uh, from Fort Lauderdale area, that's where uh, we are from, and so when we got off the plane yesterday and it was like 35 degrees, Having just left 85 degrees out of the West Palm Beach Airport, we wondered whether or not we had made a massive mistake in coming here, <clears throat> but it hasn't been a mistake. We have thoroughly enjoyed, we haven't been here even 24 hours yet, but we have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know some of the people in this church and spending some time with your pastor. This is a, this is a great place. If this is your home church, you are blessed. You really are. I've been in lots of churches, and I've been around lots of pastors, and this is a unique place. You are blessed if this is your home church. Um, If this is not your home church, and you're just here visiting from another church in the area, leave that church, okay, and come to this one. Um, 
But anyway, so thank you, Pastor Kyle, for your hospitality, for the invitation. It's an honor for me to be here. It really is. I happen to notice a Steeler fan sitting over here. I am a die-hard, die-hard, die-hard Dallas Cowboy fan. <laughs> die-hard. Now, let me tell you why the Steelers mean something special to me, though. I became a Dallas Cowboy fan in 1976. Okay, it tells you a little bit about how old I am. Uh, they were playing the Steelers in the Super Bowl in Miami, in the Orange Bowl. And the Steelers won 21 to 17. It was the first football game I ever watched, okay? And I knew, and during that game, I knew that I had to choose one of these two teams to be my favorite football team. I was five years old. And because the Cowboys' uniforms were so much better than the Steelers' uniforms, I chose the Cowboys. Anyway, I am a huge fan of anybody who's a diehard NFL fan, so I'm with you. <clears throat> okay, now that the spiritual stuff is out of the way, um, I want to focus your attention this morning on Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read the second part of verse 4, and I'm going to read down through verse 9. Philippians chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 4, down through verse 9. This is that uh, place in the Bible where the Apostle Paul gives his very impressive religious resume tells us all of his own religious accomplishments, and then he says something about those accomplishments that are, that's quite stunning. Beginning in verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness or a rightness of my own that comes from the law or my performance, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's pray together. God, with one voice, together we pray, come thou fount of every blessing and tune our hearts and our minds to see and to savor your amazing grace, your outrageous mercy, your unconditional love. God, we know that because you are in charge of all things and in control of all things, that nobody's here by accident. Every single one of us is here by divine appointment. And that means that you have something very specific to say to each and every one of us. So I pray that you would say it this morning, that you would say it loudly, that you would say it clearly, that you would say it compellingly, that you would overpower our unbelief and our doubt and meet us right where we are. Give us ears to hear and minds that understand and hearts that receive your truth, which alone can set us free. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> One of my favorite Muhammad Ali stories is a story about Muhammad Ali 
flying somewhere, and the pilot at some point in the flight comes over the loudspeaker and says, we're getting ready to experience some turbulence. All passengers need to please fasten their seatbelts. And so the flight attendants were walking up and down the aisle, checking on all the passengers to see if they had fastened their seatbelts. And a flight attendant noticed that Ali had not fastened his seatbelt. So she said to him, sir, would you please fasten your seatbelt? And he said back to her in typical Muhammad Ali fashion, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked at him and said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Please fasten your seatbelt. One of the things that life teaches us, if it teaches us anything at all, is that none of us are Superman. We are all broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. An old Presbyterian minister by the name of Jack Miller, who died a number of years ago, was famous for saying, cheer up, you're a lot worse off than you think you are. (laughs) But God's grace is infinitely greater than anything you could ever ask for or imagine. Some of you may know this and some of you may not, but I, I used to be a successful pastor. I was leading a large, well-known church in my hometown of Fort Lauderdale. I was writing a book a year. My sermons were broadcast on television all around the world every week. My sermons were on the radio every single day. I was traveling all over the country speaking at conferences and churches and other large events. According to the world standards, I had everything. I had a great family, I had a remarkable lineage, I had a successful career, I had notoriety, financial stability, influence, a good reputation. I had all those things, and then it all came crashing down. Two things that I had come to believe were secure forever were my 21-year marriage and my career, and I lost both of those things in the spring of 2015 due to my own sin and selfishness. My first marriage had begun to fall apart, and rather than giving it the attention it needed, it ultimately ended in divorce in part because I was unfaithful to my first wife and therefore deserved to lose both the marriage and the ministry God had given me. And because I was a public person, I lost it all very, very publicly. It was, without question, the most embarrassing, shameful moment in my life, and it was happening all very, very publicly. And for any of you who have been through a divorce, you know that when you go through something like that, you don't just experience the death of a marriage and the death of a family unit as it has always been, but you also lose a lot of other things. You lose friendships, you lose family Um, In my case, I not only lost my marriage and my ministry, but I lost a lot of close friendships, family ties. Uh, I lost a sense of purpose, credibility. I lost financial stability. I lost hope. I lost joy. I lost opportunity. I really lost life as I knew it and had loved it. Life for me went from feeling like a dream to feeling like a nightmare overnight. Almost everything and everyone that I had come to love and depend on in one way, shape, or form was gone overnight. I broke my own life. I broke my own family. I broke the hearts of people who loved and trusted me, and I wanted to die 
literally wanted to die. I'm the middle of seven children, and uh, my mother nicknamed me Sunshine when I was a little boy, which is not cool or masculine at all, okay? But she said, the reason I nicknamed you Sunshine is because every time you've ever walked in a room, you brighten things up. I've always loved the sights and sounds and smells of life. I've always been a people person. I've always been an extrovert. Uh, I've just, I've always loved life. I've never been a depressed kind of person or a melancholic type of person. That's just not my wiring. But when all of this happened back in 2015, I found myself in a season of depression and despair that made death seem much more preferable to life. I had never once in my life, up until that time, I was 42 when all this happened, and I never once, up until that time in my life, contemplated taking my own life. It never even crossed my mind. I loved life too much to ever think about that. But once all of this happened, every single day, Every day for at least 18 months, the thought of taking my own life crossed my mind. It wasn't constant. It wasn't all day, every day. But at some point in time during each and every day, I thought to myself, death would be so much easier than life. All of the despair and the hopelessness. I was convinced that my best years were behind me, that I would never be happy again, that I would never experience the joy that I had previously experienced. I had made a mess of my life. I had hurt people that I loved. I could barely deal with the guilt and the shame and the regret and the loss of it all. I was convinced at 42 my life was over. And if it was over functionally, maybe it should just simply end physically as well. Well, um, I have had a lot of time and a lot of help from other people to process everything that happened, everything that led up to my crash and burn and the aftermath of my crash and burn. God has done a remarkable redeeming, reconciling, restoring work, but it's been a hard, hard road, and it has taken a tremendous amount of time and effort from a lot of different people to come to my side and to nurse me back to health in many ways, but through these people um, and through my own reflections, I've come to think about that season in my life and how I got to that point and the way I responded to that season in my life. And one of the things that I've learned and come to a deeper understanding of in the last few years is that we typically don't know how deeply we depend on things to make life worth living until those things are gone. You just don't really know uh, how much you depend on certain things or certain people to make you feel like you matter, to make life worth living until those things or those people are gone. I didn't realize it at the time, but my value, my security, my deepest sense of who I was, my identity was anchored to things like my success, my reputation, my position, my friends, my ability to lead, the praise that I received, the opportunities that I had, and so on and so forth. And because of this, because my identity was so directly attached to those things, when those things were gone, I didn't just suffer grief and pain and shame and regret, I began suffering a severe identity crisis. I was 42 years old, but I felt like a 15-year-old boy looking under every rock and behind every tree for meaning and purpose. I was trying to find myself all over again. 
I was 42 and my life had been going in this direction and then very abruptly it started heading in this direction and I had no clue who I was anymore, which if you've been through anything like that before, you know how scary it can be to feel so radically uncomfortable in your own skin. I used to love people, now I was scared of people. I used to love being with people, and now I didn't want to be with anybody. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what my life was going to look like. I didn't know what tomorrow was going to have for me. I didn't know. I loved so much about my previous life, and I knew there was no going back. I was living in tremendous despair, facing depression, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, so many things that I had never faced before. Um, because without these things and without these people that I had depended on to make me feel valuable and important, I no longer knew who I was. I felt dead, therefore I might as well be dead. Well, when I was at my worst and ready to throw in the towel, wave the flag and throw in the towel, one of the people who God brought into my life, he had brought this person into my life before I crashed and burned, but brought this person into my life in a fresh way after I crashed and burned. His name is Paul Zoll. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss character, but he is a, an amazing, amazing man. He's in his late 60s. He's a retired Episcopalian priest, and he's like Yoda to me, okay? He is incredibly bright, incredibly experienced. Um, he's not just a great pastor and a great preacher and a great theologian, but he's also a great therapist. He just understands the messiness of the human condition at such a deep level that he was able to help me in ways that no one else could. Uh, I was telling Pastor Kyle this last night at dinner. When you are at the top and you have so much to offer, it's impossible to know who your true friends are. Impossible. But when you're at the bottom and the only thing you have to offer is liability and leprosy to people, you discover pretty fast who your true friends are. And Paul Zoll was one of those friends. He was one of those people who walked me through the valley of the shadow of death over and over and over again. And in so many ways, I can say honestly, I would not be here today if it wasn't for him. But when I was at my worst and really ready to throw in the towel, uh, I texted Paul and I said, I'm, I'm done. This was about a year and a half afterwards. I said, I'm done. Like, I, I live without hope every single day of my life. I live without the hope that things will get better every single day of my life, and I just can't take it anymore. And he took about two hours to respond, which was uncharacteristic of him. He would normally respond very quickly, especially in light of a text like that. He would respond very quickly. Uh, it took about two hours to respond, and later I found out that the reason he took so long to respond is because he spent those two hours praying about how specifically to respond. And when he finally did respond, he said something to me that began to turn the trajectory of my entire life. God used these words to begin shining some light into my darkness. Paul said this, the purpose behind the suffering you are going through is to push you into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. Now, I had to read that two or three times when he first said it, because it was profound. The purpose, he said, behind the suffering you are going through is to push you into a new freedom 
from false definitions of who you are. He understood me well enough to know that part of my despair, part at least of my depression, was me locating my identity, my worth, my value, my significance in all of these things that could be so easily lost or taken away. And he said, because you located your identity in those things, part of the reason that you're going through the suffering that you're going through is God stripping you of those false dependencies into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. Because you may be a dad, and you may be a mom, and you may be a father, or you may be a mother, you may be a business owner, you may be a pastor, you may be whatever it is. Those may be your roles, but that's not your identity. And so often when we confuse role and identity, when our roles change, we undergo a massive identity crisis. So I see this all the time with men, for instance, when they retire. For so long, they have located their identity in the work that they do, and when their role changes, and they're no longer in that role, they find themselves in their late 60s, early 70s, and many of them have come to me and said this, I don't know who I am anymore. Or typically this happens with mothers when their kids grow up and move out. For so long, they've located their identity in their role as a mom, and when they're no longer needed in the ways that they were previously needed, they find themselves undergoing a midlife crisis when the kids move out and move away, and they don't know who they are anymore. They lose the sense of purpose. That's what happens when we locate our identity in anything or anyone smaller than who God is and what he has done for us. So he says, the purpose behind the suffering you are going through is to push you into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. Now, the first thing that caught my attention in that sentence that he sent to me was the purpose behind the suffering you were going through. You see, when you, when you screw up, you make a massive mistake, you make a mess of your life, and you hurt yourself and you hurt those around you, there will never be a shortage of people to remind you of why you're suffering. Okay? They will line up to tell you, to remind you of why it is you're suffering. Especially people inside the church, that's the irony. But they will line up and remind, well, you're getting what you deserve. They will remind you over and over. It is, isn't it a wonderful thing? You know, while we may hold our sins against us, and while others may hold our sins against us, isn't it good news that God does not count our sins against us? Um, but there's, there'll never be a shortage of people to remind you of why you're suffering. I had plenty of those, and still do. Um, what I was lacking was an understanding of whether or not there was any purpose behind it. Is this mess something that God can work with? Is there any redemption on the other side of this crash? Is there any life on the other side of this death? That's what I was struggling with. And so when he said there is purpose behind the suffering you're going through, there's purpose to it. It's not just consequences of bad decisions there's purpose god's doing something in it he's doing something for you and what he's doing for you is what he's promised he will always do for all of us and that is to set us free oftentimes from ourselves and from those things that we have depended on that are smaller than him to invest our lives with meaning and value and purpose and significance and security and all of those things god is on a mission to set us free and so when Paul said the purpose is God is setting you free from false definitions of who you are, a light began to flicker. 
for the first time in such a long time. Now listen, I don't, I don't know what you're going through or what you're currently losing. I don't know what your shattered dreams are. I know you have them because you're human. I don't know what you've suffered or what you're guilty of doing. I don't know your deepest fears. I don't know your insecurities. I don't know your secrets. And I don't know your shame. As I said at the beginning, I know that we are all fallen, broken people living in a fallen, broken world with other fallen, broken people. And that means that pain is real. Life is hard. Consequences are difficult. I know that life is hard for all of us in a variety of different ways, externally, internally, whatever the case may be. And I don't know what the hardness of your life looks like. But what I do know is this. Who you are, no matter who you are, who you are, who you truly are, who you ultimately are, has nothing to do with you. How much you can accomplish, or who you can become, or what you've done, or failed to do, or how smart you are, or what other people think of you, or your behavior, good or bad, your strengths, your weaknesses, your family background, your education, how your kids turn out, the way you look, and so on and so forth. Your identity, who you truly are, is ultimately anchored in Jesus' accomplishment, not yours. His strength, not yours. His performance, not yours. His victory, not yours. In other words, you are not what you do. You are what Jesus has done for you. That is your identity. Your roles may change. Your situation in life may change. Your friendships may change out from time to time. Things are fluid and changing all the time in your life, but there is one thing that does not change, and that is who you truly are based on what God has done for you. Now, that's something that is so important to understand because everywhere in the world and a lot of places in the church, you're being constantly told you are what you do. You are a self-defined person. I read something the other day from a pastor, and he said something like, it's not your pain that defines you, it's how you handle your pain that defines you. And I was like, no, it's not true. Neither your pain nor how you handle your pain defines you. God defines you. And God's work on your behalf is what defines you. That's who you truly, truly are. So... The foundation of Christianity is not our transformation or our self-authentication, okay? That is not the foundation of Christianity. The foundation of Christianity is Christ's substitution, not our transformation. And that's good news because if God's love and acceptance of me is based on my transformation, I'm in trouble, okay? If God's love for me is based on my performance, how I'm doing, um, if his love for me increases when I'm being good, whatever that means, in God's economy, good means perfect, by the way, okay, so um, God accepts us based on Christ's perfection, not our progress, keep that in mind, just a side note, okay, um, so if it's not based on the work of another 
We're all screwed. We may all admit that we have fallen short of God's glory, but that doesn't stop us from comparing distances, okay? We do that all the time. And we're constantly measuring ourselves based on the person sitting next to us or the person across the room or the bad person that we hear about. But God doesn't measure us like that. There is perfection and there is failure. And since none of us are perfect and all of us have fallen short of God's glory, we need a substitute to come and do for us and be for us what we could not do for ourselves and do for ourselves. And so that is good news. Because if God's love for me and God's acceptance of me was based on anything I do, I'd be in trouble. So, for instance, I'm not the Christian that I ought to be. Neither are you, by the way. Okay, don't think you're better than me. Um, nor am I the father or the friend or the husband that I should be. For instance, I wish I could say I do everything for God's glory. I wish I could say that. And I'm sure you do too. I can't. And neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus' blood covers all of my efforts to glorify myself. Okay, I wish that I could say truly and honestly that Jesus fully satisfies me. I can't. And neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus fully satisfied God for me. That's the gospel. That's the good news that sets us free and alleviates our pressure. I wish, I wish that I could say I surrender all to Jesus. I can't. I can't. Neither can you if you're being honest. But what we can say is that Jesus surrendered all for me. Substitution is the heartbeat of Christianity. It's what makes this whole thing go and it's what gives us life. Most people assume that Christianity is good advice for good people rather than good news for bad people. But the fact is that God loves bad people because bad people are all that there are. Okay? When Jesus said, I have not come for the righteous, but for the sinner, some people think what he meant was, I have not come for the good people because they have no need of me. They're doing just fine. I've come for the bad people because they're train wrecks and they need me. That's not what he was saying. He was saying there are two groups of people. There are bad people who think they're good, and then there are bad people who know they're bad. But there's no such thing as a non-bad person, and the bad people who think they're good will never listen to a word I say because they think they're doing fine on their own. But the bad people who know that they're bad, they will hear my voice because they have come face to face with their own desperation and need. Um, most of the people, and I'll close with this, most of the people that I meet these days, because I'm very honest and transparent wherever I go and telling my story, as hard as it is to tell, as embarrassing as it is to stand up and tell some of the details of my story, I tell it because I know of no better way to communicate how good God is until I can first talk about how bad I am. And so most of the people that I meet these days are people like me, people who live with guilt and shame and regret because of what they've done. People who would do anything to go back in time and make different choices, but are presently plagued knowing that they can't. People who fear that they will never hope again. People who endure the painful void of broken relationships. People who struggle with believing that anybody, even God, could love them because they've screwed up so many times. These are the people that reach out to me and the people that I talk to. And one thing stands out about all their stories. Even though their circumstances may be different, there's one common thread that runs through all of their stories, and it's this. Sadly, 
that the church is all too often the scariest place rather than the safest place for fallen people to fall down and for broken people to break down. And it shouldn't be. Churches, and I'm absolutely convinced of this, okay? Churches that will thrive in any meaningful way going forward will not be castles of purity where only the morally fit feel comfortable, but rather basements of grace where broken sinners are embraced and forgiven. Places where sin does not shock and grace still amazes. Those will be the only churches that will make any meaningful difference going forward. God is not, trust me, God is not looking for another photoshopped church with another photoshopped pastor. People see right through Christians who deny the reality of their own struggle and who see themselves as examples of morality rather than trophies of grace. People see right through that stuff. People are craving realness and authenticity and transparency and honesty and the courage to acknowledge their struggles and how God meets them in their lowest points and in their deepest weaknesses. So all I can say, as special as this place is, continue to be a church that reminds people that we can never go back to a past that we have lost or ruined, but we can always go to God. A God who promises to love and use weak people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people. Be a voice crying out in the wilderness, the wilderness of human struggle and need. Be a church that reminds people constantly that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Constantly remind people that God has forgiven the sins of our yesterdays and todays and tomorrows. And listen to me, that the sins we can't forget, God does not remember. That's what... That's what Hebrews 8.12 makes very clear. I will remember their sins no more. Continue to be a church that reminds people over and over that well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more, my God who knoweth none. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. Why? Because I picked myself up on my bootstraps and cleaned myself up? No. Because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus that has been given to us for free. That his, that we are locked in a cage of righteousness. We are clothed in an irremovable suit of forgiveness because of the work of another. What he has done defines you. Continue to be a church that reminds people that God will never stop pursuing us no matter how far or fast we run. Remind people of the seemingly too good to be true nature of grace that inseparably connects us to the God of repeat offenders. Continue to be a church that reminds guilty people that it is finished and that he does not care.
count your sins against you because he counted your sins against Christ. And now you live your life under a banner that reads, it is finished. Nothing can separate you from God's love, Paul says in Romans 8, because God's love for you is in no way, shape, or form dependent on you. It is dependent on his work for you. God, I pray that you would massage this counterintuitive message down deep into our bones and use it to set us free. Liberate us from the performance treadmill that we spend so much of our lives on. And remind us that you offer rest to the weary and heavy laden did not say that if we come to you, you will give us a to-do list. You said if we come to you, you will give us rest. A rest from all of our striving, from all of our self-salvation projects. So help us to believe your promise. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.